0: Well, let's go ahead and get into week four of our series called This Is Us. Now, we've said from the beginning that um, we have based this series and this concept around a very popular TV show that is running these days called This Is Us. And so we are in week four. We're really at the midpoint of our series. And we have yet to show any clips or scenes of the show that our series is based around. And so I'm going to fix that today. We're going to change that today. I want to show you a a really quick clip of the show, This Is Us. Now, real quick, I'm not looking to dig in here too much, but um, just quick context. Uh, This show is all about this uh, family dynamic where they try to show the different lives of the children and the parents involved. And what you're about to see is um, an interesting dynamic because they have adopted a son And so they're working through some of the things that can come about through that. So you're going to see the adult version of this family having it out a little bit. And I think you'll pick up very quickly on what exactly is going on. So let's go ahead and enjoy this quick clip.
1: I am thankful for my family. I am thankful that everyone's safe. And there is no one in the whole world. I'd rather be too hot or too cold. Grandma always does the same thing. (laughs) Yeah, she does, doesn't she? Is everything all right, baby? Um, you girls should go upstairs and play in Tessa's room for a little while. Come on. Why is there a photo of me and a letter that you sent to William's apartment? Randall, no, you know I what? Don't, wa- don't speak, please. Don't just, um... I went to William's apartment to get his old Thanksgiving tapes. I was about to go, and I saw this envelope. I said, I know that handwriting. That's my mother's handwriting, but how, how could that be? That- it doesn't make sense, right? Okay. So, I, uh, dear William, I'm sorry I had to leave in such a hurry, but it was wonderful to see you looking so well after all these years. after all these years. Randall, you have to understand... Understand what, that you knew my father? That you kept him from me my entire life? Everything that I Just think- stop! Please. I can't, I can't even look at you. And all the times I asked you about my family, and if I had found them on my own, I'd... I gotta go. Wait. Just wait a second, Please, I babe. I
0: just gotta
1: get some
0: time alone, excuse me. Hey. Hey, guys. I... Sorry I'm so late. I have an announcement. I've decided to have gastric bypass surgery.
1: Your family's
0: amazing. Mm, tense, right? Tense. Uh, as I mentioned at, at the beginning of the series, this is uh, definitely one of those shows that pulls at the heartstrings, Uh, very emotional, very dramatic. But uh, the reason that I chose this scene uh, for you guys to see is what I found really interesting is um, when you look at a family dynamic and there's any sort of uh, potential betrayal that occurs or there's any sense of a lack of loyalty that comes up, um, it it typically ends in a a pretty explosive way, right? Right? That's typically how that's gonna end. And of course, the reason that is, is because our families are the ones who are supposed to have our backs beyond anything, right? Like through thick and thin, we're in the trenches together, we have each other's backs. And so anytime there's even the slightest sense of betrayal, it typically does not end very well. And so I saw this scene and that really stood out to me and so as we head into the New Testament today and, and we look into the life and the ministry of Jesus and the people that surrounded him, what immediately came to my mind is just how prevalent this concept was in the life of Christ. In the life of Christ, so often he has to deal with this lack of loyalty and this sense of betrayal. And isn't it interesting that the Son of God and flesh would have to deal with this over and over and over again? We know that Judas, who is one of his 12 disciples, is ultimately the one that sells him over to the Roman soldiers to be charged and ultimately to be crucified. Major betrayal. Right, We know Peter, who is his right-hand man, this is his guy, denies him three times, denies even knowing him while he's on trial, major betrayal. We see when Jesus goes to be crucified, his disciples run for the hills and they go and hide because they're scared for their own lives. Betrayal after betrayal after betrayal. This is what Jesus had to encounter and we see explosive results from that. But today, I want to give you a really surprising example of the, the, maybe the best representatives of this idea of betrayal that we see in the life and ministry of Christ. And I hope that you'll see this by the time we're finished today. But the people that we're going to be talking about today is a group called the Pharisees. Okay, We're going to be talking about a group called the Pharisees. Now, if if you were to have the opportunity to go back into time, if that was something that you could do and you could plant yourself in the land of Israel right around the time that Jesus's ministry is about to begin, okay? Things are about to to ramp up and you had the opportunity to to put money down on who you think would have been the ones that would have accepted and assisted Jesus most throughout his ministry, these people, the Pharisees, would have been the people that you would have put your money down for. I'm telling you right now, these are the ones that you would have thought would have championed and welcomed Christ the most. They're gonna promote him. They're gonna be his guys. For sure, these are the group of people he's gonna choose. And yet what we go on to read by the end of Jesus's ministry is that these are the very people that ultimately wanted to bring him down the most. This is the group that actually led the charge to diminish his work and to strip him of glory. And so given what we ultimately see from them is so different than what we may have expected, I wanted to spend the first part of our message today digging into the perspective of the Pharisees so we can try to understand exactly where they were coming from. Okay. I know it's, it's really easy to to judge and to pigeonhole somebody because of a few mistakes, but if we really want to learn from them, then we have to do the hard work of digging in and seeing who they really were and where exactly they were coming from. And so that's what I wanna do a little bit of today, really understand why in the world did the Pharisees ultimately do what they did to Jesus, okay? Now, the Pharisees were simply a religious party or a religious sect within the Jewish faith, okay? That's who they were. So they were uh, kind of a denomination as we might understand it today. And they began to, to pick up prominence around 160 B.C., All right, so only around 150 years before Jesus comes onto the scene is when this group begins to form. And so by the time Jesus comes around, this group had grown to about 6,000 people, okay? About 6,000. Now, within a religion that was in the millions at this point, that's obviously not a significant amount of people, okay? Not very big. But because of this group's knowledge and passion, they actually became one of the most influential groups within Judaism by the time Jesus shows up on the scene. Okay, so while they may have been small in number, they were quite large in terms of their impact. Very influential, very impactful group of people. Now, there are a few important things that make the Pharisees really stand out in this day and time, okay? A a few distinctions that we need to be aware of. And the first one is this. Unlike many of the other parties who were alive during the time of Christ, the Pharisees were were really just a group of of laymen, okay? In other words, they weren't of high esteem. Uh, They didn't come down the family line of the high priest. They didn't come from royalty. They were really just everyday people who happened to be very passionate about God, okay? Now, they were very knowledgeable, In fact, many of them were scribes, which meant that they were very well-versed in scripture, and they even helped with copying some of the sacred manuscripts back in the day, okay? So they were true, legitimate scholars, but they didn't come from high esteem or or honor, okay? They were just ordinary-type guys back in this day. But speaking of knowledge, this was something else that really separated them as a people group, because they were unbelievably meticulous when it came to studying and applying the Torah, okay? Now, when I say the Torah, I'm just talking about the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, that's the Torah. And the Pharisees knew these writings better than anyone in this day and time. They were unbelievably thorough in their understanding and application. And in fact, because of this, they ended up becoming a part of what was called the Sanhedrin, Okay? Now, to try to bring this into kind of a modern day concept, the Sanhedrin was um, a, a religious supreme court of sorts. Okay? So they were responsible for, uh, for applying religious law, for handing down judgments, for overseeing the function of the law, very important stuff for the Jewish people. And the Pharisees had a seat at this table. All right. Now, history shows us that they only really had a minority stake in the Sanhedrin. And yet, once again, because of their knowledge and their passion, they actually grew to have the most influence of any group within this important council. And we actually see this come to light throughout much of Jesus's life and ministry, right? They definitely had some pull. They definitely had some influence back in this time. But there was one particular distinction that really made them a unique group, and it was something that also impacted their dealings and their interactions with Jesus pretty significantly. And that is, this group of people, uh, especially for, for the day and time they were living in, were quite progressive in their understanding and in their viewpoints, okay, very progressive thinkers. And we see that come about in a few major ways, okay? Number one, while they were unbelievably meticulous about observing the law, they were also known for accepting oral traditions as truth as well, okay? So if there was a religious tradition that they felt they could tie back to the days of Moses, then whether it was explicitly written in scripture or not, they would accept that as irrefutable truth. Okay. So typically how this would play out, it was, they would look at these traditions and if they could tie it back to the law, then they felt like there was some sort of continuity, right? Trying to keep some sort of common thread moving throughout. What they were really trying to do is they were trying to kind of set up this additional fence around the law so that no one could even get close to to violating it, right? Let's really keep some distance so that you can't even come close to going against God's laws. And while that may seem like an honorable attempt, this is actually what really caused conflict with Jesus throughout his life and his ministry. In fact, at one point, this is what he says to them in Mark chapter seven, you skillfully sidestep God's law in order to hold on to your own tradition. Verse 13, and so you cancel the word of God in order to hand down your own tradition. And so what he's trying to show them is by creating this additional fence, rather than strengthening the law, they're actually diminishing it, okay? They're actually nullifying the word of God because they're trying to add to it. And so as a result, they're actually having an adverse effect on their ministry because they're negating what God had actually commanded them to do. Now, their other big progressive push at this time is that they wanted to try and make the Jewish religion a little bit more democratic in its approach. Okay, So rather than giving all of this control to the temple and to the people who would oversee it, they wanted to make it more of an open, available religion so that people could worship God anywhere. Okay, That was what they really wanted to create. And so let's do away with the, the bloody sacrifices and the priestly order, and let's put an emphasis on prayer and on study and on fellowship. Okay, That's what they wanted to do. And in fact... This thought process was a huge factor in the implementation of the synagogues, okay? Now, we see these throughout the life of Christ, but synagogues were simply places for prayer, for study, and for fellowship. But they were separate entities from that of the temple so that they could place them anywhere, okay? Again, they were just trying to make it available for the people of God. Now, listen, here's the thing. This was a radical idea for any Jewish follower at the time, okay? This was a very, very progressive thought process. But honestly, it actually showed pretty good foresight on the part of the Pharisees, right? Because actually, much of what they were trying to implement before Christ came is what the church went on to implement a few generations later. And so actually, they were quite advanced, quite wise in their understanding and their viewpoint of God, okay? Pretty impressive stuff on the part of the Pharisees. Now, here's the thing. We know from our time of reading through the life of Christ and sifting through the gospels that these people, the Pharisees, were often looked at as the enemy of Christ, right? We see many, many different arguments. We see them trying to test Jesus. We see them trying to spark up anger against him. Like, obviously, it wasn't a great relationship that they had there. But here's the crazy part, and this is where we wrap back to what I was talking about at the beginning. Believe it or not, amongst all of the parties in the Jewish faith at this time, the people who were most like Christ in their position and in their stance was the Pharisees. And actually this went beyond their distinctions and into their beliefs. Because unlike many others in the Judaic order at this point, they believed in resurrection after life. They believed in the working of angels. They believed in the spreading of the message rather than hoarding it. Like they were on the doorstep of what Christ was about to bring to the forefront. And so, in an odd way, this is one of the reasons they butted heads so much with Christ, because they were the ones who were actually closest to his way of thinking. You know, they often say that a parent has the toughest time connecting with the child that's most like them, right? There can be some competition, it can seem controlling, it's a difficult connection to make sometimes. And in a similar way, this is kind of the dynamic that was in play between Jesus and the Pharisees. They weren't two enemies going at it, in some ways they were two allies struggling to coexist together. That's really the dynamic that was going on throughout Jesus' dealings with these people. Now, this is a totally different perspective than what we typically think when we look at the Pharisees. Because we're very, very quick to condemn them for the way that they treated Christ, right? Very, very quick to put them down and to make them the villains of the story. But there's actually pretty extensive history in the New Testament that actually paints the Pharisees in a positive light. Like there's actually a lot of good that they do that for some reason we so easily overlook. Let me give you a few examples here. In John chapter seven, it's a Pharisee that sticks up for Jesus amongst the officers and the chief priests. In Luke 13, it's a group of Pharisees that warn Jesus that Herod is trying to find him and kill him. In John 19, it's a Pharisee that helps in the memorial and burial of Christ. In Acts five, it's a Pharisee that stands up for the apostles as they're on trial and actually saves their lives. It's a Pharisee. And in Acts 9, it's a Pharisee named Saul who is converted to Christianity and ultimately becomes the writer of much of our New Testament. Like there's, there's a lot of good stuff that's going on here that we so easily overlook. And so what I want to do today is, um, I don't wanna act like this is a really simple situation and, and these Pharisees are just a bunch of bad guys. I wanna look at both the good and the bad of what the Pharisees ultimately brought to light. I wanna look at their strengths as well as their weaknesses so that we can truly get the full scope of their story and learn as much as we possibly can from it. And I think if we do that, we can take an honest look at the Pharisees and in a very vulnerable, eye-opening way, admit this is us, okay? So let's jump into this today. One of the things that we have to look at first when it comes to the Pharisees, and honestly, we just have to admire this about them, is their dedication and their discipline for the way that they displayed their focus on God. Okay, very disciplined, very dedicated people. And if we're being honest about it, um, they would put us to shame in terms of the way that they dedicated their lives to Christ. Just honestly, they would put us to shame. They would run circles around us. And even back in this time frame, they were really unrivaled in their dedication and discipline. In fact, they were so serious about this lifestyle that they started these practices at an unbelievably young age, okay? Unbelievably young. Let me give you an indication of what I'm talking about. By the age of 4, a Pharisaic child had to have already begun memorizing the entire book of Leviticus four years old, the entire book of Leviticus, 27 chapters all around the Mosaic law, four years old. By the age of seven, they would then branch out to the other books of the Torah. And by 12 years old, they had to have memorized all five books by the age of 12. Now, let me give you a reference point. That's 187 chapters, 5,888 verses and 79,976 words that they had to have memorized by the age of 12. This is what we see from the Pharisees. And so listen, when I say that these people were dedicated to the word of God, when I say that they were knowledgeable, we're talking about a different level of knowledge and dedication, right? We're talking a totally different stratosphere than we might typically think today. But here's the thing. It wasn't just about the fact that they knew this stuff. It was also about their discipline in living it out, okay? Because make no mistake about it, they put this stuff into practice. And let me give you a few examples of this. Not only did these people tithe on their income, which is what we're accustomed to today, they literally tithed on everything that they owned, They literally gave 10% of everything they owned to the temples and to the synagogues, down to the spices and seasonings in their cabinet. Ridiculous, right? The Sabbath day, day of rest, they couldn't do anything that might even be perceived as working. Like I'm telling you, you go and look at the things they couldn't do. It's crazy to the point to where they had to count their steps as to not go over the prescribed limit for that day crazy discipline. Um, Some of the typical stuff we might be aware of. um, They prayed at least three times a day. And I'm not talking about like just checking in with God. I'm talking in-depth prayer at least three times a day. Um, They were constantly, constantly studying the Torah. They had to fast at least two days a week. At least two of the seven days a week, they were fasting for God. Their discipline was off the charts off the charts. They were so dedicated to this. I have no idea how they got anything else done. Seriously, so, so dedicated. Now, here's the thing. This is oftentimes the type of stuff that for some reason we hold against them as a group. This is the type of stuff that that we use against them. Like, oh, you know, look at their traditions and their customs and trying to show off and flex their muscles, right? And, And yet, if we're being honest about it, The only way we can look at their dedication and scoff is either because our desire for God doesn't match theirs. Like we think it's kind of silly they have that level of intensity for God or we're just flat out jealous of their passion. Like those are the two options. You better check yourself when you're looking at the Pharisees, right? And and if I'm being honest, it's option B for me. Like I am jealous of the passion that they had for the word of God. I envy that. I've talked about this before, but, you know, each one of us connects with God in our own different ways, right? We each have our own special connection point. For some, that's prayer. Um, For some of us, that's nature. For some, that's serving. We each connect with God differently. For me, the best way that I connect with God is through reading his word. That's just my preferred connection point. That's what seems to fill my cup better than anything. And so oftentimes I will have a hunger and a thirst to go read the Bible and to learn more about God. I feel that urge quite often. And yet, if you were to compare my daily practices to that of the Pharisees, it would be horrifying for me. I would be so unbelievably embarrassed of that. I would be kicked out of their group in less than a day. Seriously. And so listen to me, it's easy to look at them and scoff because of their rituals and and their traditions. But honestly, when we do that, we're missing out on the fact that much of what they did should actually be revered. Like much of what they were doing in their lives, much of what they were committed to should be respected by us. And more importantly, should be emulated by us. I want you to think about it. Do you really think God doesn't want his people to have a never-ending desire for his word? Do you really think he doesn't want his people to prioritize him in a way that might seem a little bit odd and strange? You think he doesn't want that? Like, I know that, that we give ourselves an easy out because we're talking about the big, bad Pharisees, right? But when we do that, we're missing out on the point. And if we're being honest about it, we should probably look a lot more like them than we think we should probably emulate them a lot more than we give credit for. And frankly, until we can match their intensity and passion, we should probably respect them rather than degrade them. That's where we need to start when we look at the Pharisees. In fact, amongst all of the arguments that Jesus had with this group of people, he never argued with their dedication. He never argued with their commitment. Watch what he says in Matthew 5, he says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Verse 20, for I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter into the kingdom of heaven. Unless your righteousness your dedication, your discipline, your devotion surpasses that of what we're talking about from the Pharisees, you will not enter into the kingdom of heaven. See, he's not disparaging them for their commitment. In fact, he's kind of using them as a standard. Like this is the standard way up here. This is what you have to achieve to enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, some of you might be sitting there thinking, if that's the standard, I'm tapping out now right? I'm out. There's no way my life has lived up to that. And if it makes you feel any better, mine hasn't either. Okay. But here's what Jesus was really trying to tell them in Matthew chapter five. Okay. Last week we talked about how all we have to do is put our faith in the work of Christ, right? Trust that his grace is going to cover us and put our faith in him, which is true. That is true. But here's what we didn't discuss. And this is oftentimes what people don't understand. When Christ died on the cross and he rose again three days later, he did that in our place. He took our place in doing that. And so not only were our sins paid for at that time, but it also meant that his righteousness was imputed to us. So, in other words, not only does it mean that our sins are washed away, but it also means that we receive the righteousness of Christ. It's imputed to us. So, catch this. When God looks at his children now, he sees the goodness and the righteousness of Christ. That's what he sees. Watch what it says in Romans 3. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known. He's talking about Christ. Verse 22, this righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. To all who believe. So anyone who believes and puts their faith in the work of Christ will receive his righteousness. So this is what he's saying in Matthew chapter 5. Hey, catch this. Here's the standard way up here. Beyond even what the Pharisees would do. But don't sweat it. Don't worry about it. I've taken care of it. My righteousness is being credited to you. You just have to put your faith in me. That's what he's saying in Matthew chapter five. And catch this, this is where the Pharisees ultimately got themselves in trouble. Because see, what the Pharisees were trying so desperately to do throughout their lives was measure up, right? We gotta go and we gotta earn and we gotta accomplish. We have to hit that standard, right? And in reality, all they were doing is pushing themselves further From God. They were focused on earning and accomplishing rather than submitting and obeying. And so the more and more that they put the focus on the exterior, the more and more they obsessed about the rituals and traditions, catch this, the more and more they made it about themselves. And this is where things started to get ugly for them because at some point their dedication and their discipline had shifted from a place of glorifying God to glorifying themselves. And so all of a sudden, the focal point became their dedication and their commitment rather than what they should have been dedicated and committed to. And so catch this, their minds and their priorities were in the right place. There was one problem, their hearts were not. Their hearts were not in the right place. They began to do this for all the wrong reasons. Until finally, at one point, this is what Jesus says about them in Matthew 15. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Listen to that. They honor me with what they say. Their hearts are far from me. See, what the Pharisees became obsessed with was knowing a lot of things about God without actually having a real relationship with God. They were always in the pursuit of gaining knowledge and information and intelligence. They were rarely in the pursuit of actually getting to know God for who he truly is was. And once again, this mindset continued to shift the importance from them, from, from God to them. Now catch this. This was so much the case that it came about at the time that their ego and their pride was so heavy and that they were so obsessed with their traditions and rituals that they had God in the flesh standing right in front of them. He was standing right in front of them And rather than bowing down and worshiping him, rather than dropping everything and following him, they conspired to kill him. Now, these are people that knew the Torah better than anyone, dedicated their lives to his commands and his laws, but they began to put so much of the focus on the things about God that they couldn't even recognize him when he finally arrived. Man, they got it messed up. They got it twisted. I can't help but think about how applicable this is for our culture today. I can't help but think about how applicable this mindset is for us today. Because if we're being honest, we have become experts, experts at knowing people without really knowing people. You know what I mean? Like we know so much information about people, but we rarely actually know who they truly are inside. Whether it's celebrities or or it's athletes or it's your neighbors or it's Facebook friends, we put so much of the focus on the exterior that we have no idea who they really are on the inside. And as a result of that, what's happened is we've been conditioned to be content with surface level relationships. We're good with that. We're content with that. There's no true depth, like there's no true commitment, but we're good with that. And this is one of the reasons why social media has become such a problem for us. Because what happens is all we are privy to is a little bit of information that we see on the outside, right? All we get are the posts and the the pictures and the arguments and, and that's all we get. And so what happens is we get to the point to where we think we really know someone just because we have a little tiny glimpse of who they are through this blurry window that we're looking through. We think we know these people. And yet if I were to ask some of these people who you quote unquote know this way, who you are, they would have no idea. If I were to ask them who you are, they wouldn't have a clue. Now, isn't it scary to think that we know so much information about people who don't even know who we are? Is this scary for anybody that we put so much time into people that we don't even really know? And let me just clarify, I'm not talking about, you know, studying important people and and trying to understand and learn. That's not what I'm talking about. Here's the problem. When we mistake that type of pursuit for a real genuine relationship with someone, it gets twisted real quick. There's no depth. There's no commitment. There's no foundation And we think it's a relationship. And this whole message is something that Christ was very clear about. He wanted his people to know very seriously what a true relationship looked like. Watch what he says in Matthew 7, and this is a big one. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles, catch this, then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Now, wait a second, we called you Lord. Like we, we prophesied, we did miracles in your name. We did all this cool stuff. Yeah, but you never got to know me. There was never a relationship. There was no depth. There was no commitment. It was empty. And this is the trap that so many of us fall into. I'm telling you, one of the easiest things you can possibly do within the realm of religion is get caught up in the stuff. There's so much stuff that you can wrap yourself in that you forget about the whole point to begin with. And so what happens over time is we read scripture and we serve at the church and and we go to the events and we sing the songs, but it's not real or sustainable until you truly get to know God. Until you truly decide that a real relationship with God is what you desire, the rest of it is useless. You honor me with your words. Your heart is far from me. So listen, you can only have a real relationship if your heart is in it. And I mean, deep down to your core, to the depths of your soul, you are in it. That's what a relationship is. And that's what he's looking for. In fact, Jesus makes this very important statement in John 14. He says, if you love me, keep my commands. If you love me, then keep my commands. Because listen, I'm not looking for you to just do all this stuff to to appease yourself. I'm not looking for you to do all this stuff so that you can feel better about yourself or because you feel obligated to. That's not what I want. I want your heart. I want a relationship with you. That's what I'm looking for. And so when we do these things, listen, when we read the Bible, we do it so that we can grow in the knowledge of who he is. We can understand him better for our relationship. When we pray, we do it with the intention of drawing closer to him for our relationship. When we serve, we do it to show him we love him for our relationship. It must be about that. And if we lose focus of this, we're going to become like the Pharisees. That's the road that we're going to head down and catch this what's crazy is at times that may even feel like progress because after all, we're, we're reading the Bible, right? We're showing up for church. We're serving as a volunteer. But if we did some soul searching, if we really dug down deep and we're honest with ourselves, sometimes we do it just to make ourselves feel better. Sometimes we do that just because we feel obligated to, And I'm telling you, until we change that, we will fade and we will grow weary because there's no foundation, there's no heart. It's not sustainable unless you have a relationship with God. And that's what Jesus wanted us to know. That's what Jesus wanted us to to know through this story of of the Pharisees. A relationship is what I desire. I don't care about all this stuff. If you just give me your heart, the rest of it will take care of itself. So don't substitute the things of God for God himself. Do you recognize how silly that is? Do not substitute the things of God for God himself. And if the Pharisees taught us anything, they taught us this. We must be serious about our relationship. We must be focused on him. And if we're not, we will fade away. We will fade away.